Well, there are many in the Bible who experience direct attacks from the devil himself or Satan. First, of course, was Eve who was tempted by Satan to eat the forbidden fruit of the garden. Uh, remember, he was, his was ultimately an enticement to pride, to be like God. Eve and then Adam, giving into that temptation, plunged the world into a cursed state with things like a virus and humanity into sin with things like racism. All of us, actually, without exception, it was a dreadful defeat. You may remember Moses was posthumously attacked by Satan. How so? Well, Jude tells us that Satan and the archangel Michael fought over the body of Moses. You see, most agree if Satan could entice the people to, to build some shrine to their now deceased great leader, he would perhaps succeed in drawing the people's attention away from the God of Moses. Perhaps immediately, though, Job comes to mind who faced relentless attacks from Satan. Job lost his wealth, his family, his health, his reputation. The good news is Job largely and faithfully resisted those evil attacks. We move to the New Testament, and we find after 40 days of fasting, Jesus himself was tempted three times by Satan if he could entice Jesus to sin, then all hope for humanity's redemption would be forever lost. It's interesting to note, Jesus never gave in to those temptations, but rebuffed them with the word of God. Probably something there for us to learn. You'll remember the apostle Paul was attacked by Satan through some thorn in the flesh. Three times he asked the Lord for the thorn to be removed, and the Lord responded, my grace is sufficient for you. You don't need a lack of thorns, Paul. What you need is a recognition of abundant, magnificent, soul-strengthening grace. And then, of course, our author, the one we are studying, Peter, was also attacked by Satan. You'll remember the time that he was up in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked the disciples who they thought he, that is Jesus, was. Peter rightly and gloriously responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Home run, Peter, you got it right. But then immediately the frontal attack came. Jesus began telling his disciples they were headed to Jerusalem where he would be handed over to Jewish authorities and Roman authorities and ultimately put to death through crucifixion. Now, now this is interesting. Hearing of Jesus Fate, Peter said, no, no way, Lord, I'll never let that happen to you. To which Jesus famously responded, get behind me, Satan. This was obviously an attack of the evil one. An attack against Peter, of course, but also an attack against Jesus. And an attack against us. As it would intervene in God's plan of redemption. Please notice, if Peter prevented Jesus from dying on a cross, it would be the work of Satan, meaning the work of the cross was not satanic, quite the opposite. It was the work of God as he sought to provide redemption for humankind for which uh, there was no other way. 
And so when we regularly hear that the forces of evil celebrated the death of Jesus on the cross, that is simply not true. It was the first nail in the coffin of their defeat, and the resurrection would be the last. To be clear, the cross was God's great victory and spelled Satan's ultimate defeat. The cross of Jesus Christ is the apex of divine history as God demonstrated most gloriously his attributes before and on behalf of a lost and sinful world. Permit me to illustrate with a story that I shared with you some time ago. I was in the car listening to Christian radio, the speaker, I could give you his name, most of you would recognize him, was talking about this great cosmic struggle between God and the forces of evil. With great passion, he said something like this, as I recall. It's as if all through the Old Testament, God and the devil were playing a chess match. God would choose a man, make his move, and the devil would counter. He too would choose a man, make his move, countering everything God did. Move, counter-move, attack, counter-attack. By the end of the Old Testament, it had been pretty much a draw. In fact, there were 400 silent years as someone pondered the next move. It was apparently God's turn, he said, because the New Testament opened with the birth of Jesus Christ. But the devil chose a man and countered. He tried to have King Herod kill Jesus. Then there was the great battle in the wilderness when the devil himself faced God himself, tempting Jesus three times. Back and forth the chess match went until the crucifixion when finally the devil said, check. And the demons were throwing a party. Jesus was dead. It appeared that the devil had won the match, but then on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus arose from the dead in glorious resurrection, and God said, checkmate, Satan. The sermon was given to a live audience, and there was great shouting, amening, as the story reached its magnificent crescendo. It sounded great, but I have some real problems with the analogy. First, God and the devil are not equals. Second, it is not as if they are playing a game. Third, the end of the match was never in question. Fourth, the crucifixion was not the devil's move, it was God's. Isaiah 53 tells us it was God who would crush and bruise his son on the cross, and he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. God was pouring out his wrath on the sin of humankind when Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. Make no mistake about it, the cross was not an attempt by the devil to destroy the Son of God. Again, when Peter said he would prevent Jesus from going to the cross, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Meaning any attempt to prevent Jesus from dying was satanically inspired. You see, the cross was the culmination of the eternal plan of God to provide redemption for us. And so, Peter was well aware of Satan's schemes, having been the object of his attention not only up north in Caesarea Philippi. About six months later, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus reminded his disciples that his time had come. He also told them, strike the shepherd, 
and the sheep will scatter. That very night, all of them would scatter, fall away, leave him, desert him in his time of greatest need. Peter, always the first one to open his mouth with false bravado, said, not me, Lord, even if everyone else flees, I won't. You can count on me. To which Jesus gave a startling reply. Peter, Satan has demanded or sought permission to have you, to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So when you turn back, encourage or strengthen your brothers. And he did. We call it First Peter. But at first, in, in response, Peter, of course, said, I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. Before the night ends, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny that you even know me, not once, but three times. You see, the roaring lion will seek to devour you through fear. So Jesus led them from the upper room down the Kidred Valley to a place called Gethsemane. It was an olive garden where he and his disciples often went to pray. And there he left most of the disciples at the entrance to the garden. He took his inner circle, well, Peter, James, and John, and went into the garden and asked them to wait for him, to watch and to pray. Don't miss that. But they couldn't even keep their eyes open. Jesus came back three times and found them sleeping. He was praying, sweating great drops of blood, and they were sleeping. About that time, the soldiers and the temple police came to arrest him. The lion roared, and they scattered. Satan attacked Peter, and for the moment, one, Peter fled. More, he denied even knowing Jesus, but don't forget, Jesus prayed for Peter, prayed that he would not fall away forever, and he did not. After that miserable failure, Jesus graciously restored Peter at the Sea of Galilee three times, just like Peter's denials. He asked him, Simon, not Peter, the rock, Simon, do you love me? Each time Peter affirmed his love, to which Jesus then responded with something similar to, then shepherd my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Within days, perhaps weeks, Jesus ascended into heaven, leaving the task of shepherding God's people to Peter and to other faithful under-shepherds. So, do you think Peter knew what he was talking about when he wrote his first letter and said to the elders of the church, as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God among you. Do you think he knew what he was talking about when he said to all of us, clothe yourselves with humility. <laughs> Don't think too highly of yourselves. I know. I fled. But he gives grace to the hum humble. Do you think Peter knew that? Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Do you think he knew what he was talking about when he said, cast all of your anxiety upon him for he cares for you. He cared for me when he graciously restored me at the sea. I think Peter knew. Peter was most qualified to write this letter through the school of hard knocks. And maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you too have spoken too harshly and fallen too greatly. 
Maybe you need to be reminded that we serve the God of all grace. You see, I think Peter knew what he was talking about when he wrote this letter. I think he knew what he was talking about when he wrote our text today. Look at it with me. Found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and following, which say this. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Hear him say it. Don't fall asleep. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do do you think Peter knew intimately what he was talking about when he wrote these words? I can see him writing them with great, passionate emotion. He understood. We have a real adversary who seeks to destroy us. He almost got me. But Jesus prayed for me. Be on the alert. Don't fall asleep like I did. Resist him. And know that we serve the God of all grace who will do his restoring glorious work in us. He will see us through. To him be dominion forever and ever. Now as we read this text, there are some extremes I believe that we need to avoid as Christians as it relates to Satan and the forces of evil, demons. One obviously is to ignore the supernatural. The cosmic battle that wages war against our souls and the souls of people. I I want to say to you that there is a real devil, there are real demons, and we need to be aware of of their schemes to destroy God's work, namely his people. Do not dismiss the reality of Satan and his evil forces as some myth of days gone by. But on the other hand, we need not to see a demon under every bush, behind every rock. Everything that happens to you is not necessarily demonic. Your flat tire probably was not a demon. It was probably a nail in the road. And yet, we must not be unaware that the forces of evil seek to do real damage, not to our cars, but to our souls. But the good news is this. We can resist him. I've said it, I will say it again. He is not equal to God. He is subservient to him and does nothing without God's knowledge, even his permission. Remember what Jesus said to Peter. Satan has desired permission. He has demanded even to sift you like wheat. Remember Satan before the throne of God accusing God of spoiling Job. He could do nothing without God's permission. God is indeed, as we've just sung, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, and indeed all-good. And Satan is subject to him. We see in this text that Satan may seek to destroy us, but he can do nothing without God's knowledge or permission in the midst of his loving care. You see, the God of all grace will strengthen us. I want you to always remember, if you don't hear anything else, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. 
There's probably another extreme that we need to avoid, and that is to actively seek conflict with the devil. Nowhere are we told to seek battle against him. We will talk about this later, but ours is simply to draw near to God. That is how we resist him, by being near the one who is greater, by being near the one that Satan has no desire to be around, by trusting him, by faith. Those who go out intentionally seeking battle with the enemy of our souls are foolish. I've watched them on the TV. I've seen them demanding that Satan come do them battle. I will not do that. I recommend that you do not as well. Before I go further, let me suggest the following outline by asking some simple questions. First, who is Satan? Second, how then do we resist him? And third, how are we encouraged in our battle against him, particularly in this text? First, who is Satan? In our text, Peter calls him the devil. The word means slanderer. Uh, He calls him our adversary, the one who opposes us. The scripture also refers to him in a number of different ways. Satan, again, which means accuser or uh, adversary. It appears 52 times in the Bible. He's called the deceiver, the accuser, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, the prince of demons, Beelzebub or Beelzebul, which means the ruler of demons. He's called the angel of light as he seeks to deceive us, the dragon, the enemy, the father of lies. Everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. The ruler of, or God of this world, the ruler of darkness, the serpent, the tempter. Most of those titles are self-descriptive and they are not good. The fact is, Satan is the avowed enemy of God and therefore the avowed enemy of God's people. He is our avowed enemy. He is out to destroy all that God loves. I often remind us that unbelievers are not the enemy. They are held captive by the enemy, Satan himself. I want to to say clearly, Satan is a deceiver. He is an enemy. He is the evil one and the one who would seek to destroy us. And so when we hear of Satan worshipers across our land as if it's something to do or something to be, it is terrible. In fact, in this passage, he's called our adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The roaring lion is meant to be descriptive of his power and his tenacity. You see, when we speak of him as a serpent, we speak of him uh, slithering and, and sneaky, out to strike without our knowledge. But here he's a roaring lion, powerful, hungry, tenacious. It's very interesting to note, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. We would therefore expect Satan to be a poor imitator. He would seek to be Aslan, but he is a poor imitation. Roaring lion is a hungry lion. He's on the prowl looking for someone to devour, to swallow up in a single gulp is the picture. I have heard it said that a lion will often roar before it pounces, seeking to freeze its prey in fear. That's the picture. Our enemy is seeking to destroy us. In the context of this book, even in this particular passage, he seeks to do that through suffering and and persecution. His goal is to get you to shrink away through fear and pain, perhaps to cause you to deny Christ in the heat of persecution and opposition. And in doing so, he devours you. I would say to you, any time that you sense a desire to shrink away from your faith, 
you find yourself fearful, know that that is the work of the evil one. He would seek to destroy you. So then how do we resist him? There are three imperatives in these verses, all having to do with what to do to resist him. The first two are somewhat synonymous, found in verse 8. We are to be sober, and we are to be alert. The word sober means to be, a, 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 to be sober and uh, to be of sober and somber mind. In other words, it means to be serious. It is not to be intoxicated by the things of this world. To be alert means to be, not be lulled into complacency and lethargy. Together, these words alert us to the seriousness of the task. Our allegiance to Jesus will cost us. We need to be awake to the challenges that will come. Just like Jesus told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, so also we need not to become drowsy or sleepy, unaware of the devil's schemes and his devices against us. And it, uh, to be clear, we do not become students of the devil, but, we, but nor do we minimize his demonic evil existence and desire to devour God's people. Now again, and clearly in this text, the schemes that Peter is talking about are primarily having to do with opposition and persecution, seeking to get Christians to waver because of the cost of following Jesus. But there are many other ways he can seek to devour us that are mentioned outside of this text. For example, he is the accuser. He accuses us um, before the Father as he did Job. He accuses us, I think, before other people. He is the tempter, presenting temptation so that we might fall into sin. He is the father of lies, telling us lies to seek our demise. I, I hope you're beginning to understand. He represents everything that is evil, and we should be aware of his crafty desires to destroy us. And to be willfully ignorant of his existence does not help. Be sober. Be alert. Now, earlier I suggested that Satan is not equal to God. In fact, I do not believe that Satan is omnipresent, meaning that Satan is everywhere present. I figure he's got bigger fish to fry than you and me, but the forces of evil are real, and they would seek to do you damage. We must not be unaware. The third imperative is found in verse 9. We are told to resist him. How? By standing firm in the faith meaning simply we continue to trust God and we continue to trust his promises. We, we do not take on Satan in our own devices, but in the power and truth of faith found in the word of God and through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We continue to trust in God when the world and the forces of evil would deny his existence. We resist him by faith. I love Ephesians 6, where Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God. Look at that text with me. It's rather lengthy, but I think it's appropriate. Ephesians 6, verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not your own. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm, as Peter just told us to do, against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. They are not, our struggle is not against unbelievers, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Most agree that that is describing the, 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 the various levels of demonic oppression. 
And therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, with truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You see, we, we, are, we are girded with the truth of God's word. And as a result, we are righteous people. This is what Peter has been calling us to throughout this book. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which is our only hope. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. He will seek to attack us. How do we defend ourselves with the shield of faith? Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert. Does that sound familiar? With all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Don't only pray for yourself, but pray for the saints. Pray on my behalf, Paul says, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. I don't want to be afraid to to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am right now an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Do you see? Paul was suffering for the gospel. When he wrote Ephesians, he was in prison in Rome. And he says to us, do not shrink back. This is an attack of the evil one. Put on the whole armor of God, which includes the shield of faith, by which, again, you extinguish the attacks of the evil one. Take up the word of the spirit, which is uh, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That is where truth is to be found. And pray for me. Pray for each other that we do not shrink back, that we together proclaim the gospel boldly. This needs to be our prayer for us in the midst of this challenge. Peter says, be sober, be on the alert, resist the devil, standing firm, not in your own strength, but in the strength of faith. James says it this way, I love this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay, that's great. How do we do that? Next verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You resist the devil through faith in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit and the Word of God by drawing near to God. In other words, our greatest device against the enemy is not to focus on him, but to focus on God. Finally, what encouragement does Peter give us in the midst of this cosmic struggle? What encouragement does he give us? Three things in this text with which I close. First, I want you to understand that you are not alone. Your brothers and sisters around the world are facing the same struggles, the same persecutions, and the same oppositions. And they, listen, they are standing firm. Stand with them. Find solidarity in the hope of the gospel. Second, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory in Christ. Stop right there. Our suffering in the grand scheme of divine things is only for a little while. That does not mean for a few weeks, a few months, or even for a few years. It means our life on earth is short compared to all of eternity. 
In, in chapter one, he had said, in, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Our suffering does not last forever, brothers and sisters, but our glory in Christ, because of the work of Christ, is eternal. Remember that Peter has written to believers in Asia Minor, Later, when we get to the book of Revelation, we will find that, that Jesus s- sends a letter to seven different churches in Asia Minor. And one of those is found in Revelation chapter 2 um, uh, to the church of, of Smyrna. And he says this, do not fear what you are about to suffer into prison. Uh, uh, excuse me, uh, what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. Probably speaking of the, the, the perfection of suffering. 10 days. Now listen, be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. You see, there is no no promise that we will be delivered in this life. To these same Christians, Jesus writes and says, be faithful to the point of death. Your suffering is only for a little while. Third, the God of all grace will make sure that we get there. He himself will perfect, that is, mature us. He will confirm us, demonstrating the reality of our faith. He will strengthen us, giving us what we need for the cost of following Jesus, and he will establish us forever. We will. He's just commanded us, and then he enables what he commands. We will stand firm in the faith. We need be aware of the roaring lion, but we need not fear him. And so Peter closes with an exclamation of worshipful benediction to him be dominion that is sovereign rule and reign forever. Amen. Amen. Because he alone is God. He has no equal. He has no rival. Satan, again, is not his equal. You cannot even refer to him as a rival, a chess partner. Rather, he is merely a subject to, do the, to the sovereign to do all that the sovereign desires for his purposes. So to God be eternal dominion that is eternal rule forever and ever. Amen.